This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. This is The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, artificial intelligence and your health, the good work of Easter Seals, and help for refugees in York Region. But we begin with Jeannie's journey. Jeannie Becker is a trailblazer, a role model, a superstar, a warrior. She's also an award-winning journalist, a writer, a producer, an author, a businesswoman, an entrepreneur, a proud mother of two, a loving partner to Ian, and she's my friend. Jeannie was diagnosed with breast cancer last year. She chose to share her journey on multiple platforms, and the response has been incredible. Here's what's remarkable. All that she gives, and I believe it's a lot, she receives tenfold from her supporters. Welcome back to the feed, Jeannie Becker. You joined us about a year ago in the early part of your breast cancer journey. You'd been diagnosed four months prior to that in May of 2022. I've got to ask you, how are you feeling today? Well, that's a loaded question because <laughs> I'm on some levels, uh, spiritually, I'm feeling amazing because I got through it and I wake up every morning and the fact that I can open my eyes and see this gorgeous world and hop out of bed, I mean, that's, that's a big deal for me. So I'm very grateful and I'm feeling great on that level. Uh, you know, I've got some aches and pains because I started on this drug and they call them aromatase inhibitors that reduces my estrogen level because I had estrogen positive breast cancer. Yep. So I'm on this drug called letrozole. It's a great drug. It's a very powerful drug. And it, uh, it, you know, it does a number to me. I've got my aches and pains, put it that way. But I'm pushing through it and, uh, you know, hanging in there. Well, I've always said you are a warrior. And when we last spoke, you had rung the chemo bell and you were anticipating surgery. So what was that procedure and the outcome? Oh, well, the surgery was uh, great. I mean, it was one of the, if you can believe it, one, one of the happiest, most memorable days of my life. It was incredible because I felt, okay, if there's any cancer left in me after all the chemo I've gone through, this is going to, you know, really take it out. And uh, and then, thank God, my margins were clear when we waited, uh, you know, afterwards to, to see how things went. I also was on until uh, not that long ago, something called Herceptin, which is another miracle drug. And I was getting that intravenously every three weeks at Princess Margaret Cancer Center. After the surgery, round about Christmas time, I started rounds of radiation. I did 15 rounds of radiation. Thankfully got through that too. That was quite easy. It's all been great. I just count my blessings every single day. I just thank God that I got the care and not only the care from the Princess Margaret, but the support, the encouragement, the cheers that I mm-hmm. felt I was getting every day from the people that follow me on Instagram and from, of course, friends and just dear ones in my life, family members. It was incredible. I mean, that was definitely the wind beneath my wings. Uh, everyone was so supportive. That was just heart-swelling. I got to ask you this, and we're going to delve into your family a little bit. Your parents were Holocaust survivors. Does your breast cancer battle give to you new meaning to the word survival? No question. But on the other hand, I always knew what a survivor meant. It wasn't like I had to go through my own thing. I mean, I survived my my first marriage breakup, you know. Actually, my first marriage breakup, I, I, no, my second marriage breakup. I've had two marriage breakups. <laughs> the second one was absolutely devastating. I got through it, though, and I just kept putting one foot in front of the other, yep. the way my parents had taught me, the way they had raised me. And I knew that it was in my DNA 
to be a survivor because my parents were survivors. And I really had that same attitude when I embarked on my cancer journey. I knew I was cut from that same cloth. I knew a lot of my journey would have to do with my attitude. And my parents just taught me uh, to always, you know, look for the light and to just keep going no matter what and to be fearless and to be tenacious. Don't be afraid and never give up. Your daughters, Becky and Joey, the best things you've ever produced, Jeannie Becker, and I, you've produced a whole lot of great stuff in your life so far. Do you worry about their breast health? I worry about every woman's breast health. I mean, people think, oh, because no one in my family ever had breast cancer, I'm free. 85% of women who develop breast cancer have had no history of breast cancer in their family. Every woman, every woman has to check. I'm thrilled that now uh, there will be easy access to mammograms if you're only 40, because it used to be 50. They've lowered the age. I think it should be even lower than that, maybe. Also, this whole idea of breast density is something that people were not aware of. I was not aware that if you have dense breasts, you must go not only for a mammogram, you must also have additional screening in the form of an ultrasound or preferably an MRI if you can get one. So we have to stop being afraid of getting screened, getting tested. We have to demand that we are screened and tested. When you know your breast density, and if you're a C or D, because there's A, B, C, D, over 40% of women are C or D, then you must get additional screening. You know, it's interesting, when we spoke last year, I admitted to you on the air that I was reluctant to have any kind of screening. Mammogram, it had been a couple of years. So after our discussion, you inspired me and you gave me the courage to do it. I ended up having to have extra screening. I ended up, I have dense breasts and I had to have ultrasound uh, on both and they found cysts. I thank you for giving me the courage to do this. Appreciate it. Well, I tell you, and I, boy, I am on a mission with this. There's no question. Uh, you know, I, I never realized a lot of this stuff before I went through my journey, of course. And I know a lot of women are not aware. So raising awareness is just absolutely the most important thing for, uh, for all of us now. And I'm so happy that you mm-hmm. did what you did and that you got out there and, you know, fearlessly went for your mammogram and found out what you needed to find out. Thank God, I think we can really help save all kinds of lives. And and, uh, what could be sweeter than that? And Jeannie, may I ask you, what does your future look like now in terms of your health? Well, I mean, so far, so good. I'm thrilled that I have this wonderful relationship with an amazing man. My girls are just, you know, incredible spirits. They inspire me every day. They're highly creative and they're doing all kinds of amazing work out there and I'm involved in so many great projects. I mean, I'm writing a book for Simon and Schuster that will be out next year about various stories in my life and various uh, life lessons that I've learned and it's all told through the lens of fashion and wardrobes. And you know, our listeners right now are all ears, so I will say, Style Matters with Jeannie Becker on the Shopping Channel. I love it. May I also mention that I love how you massage the material when you're showing things. I watch your hands, and I just love that. You're so tactile. You're so tactile. You're so smart, and you're articulate, and you're tactile. (laughs) So that's Style Matters with Jeannie Becker on the Shopping Channel. When can people see that? That's uh, on TSC Thursday night from 7 to 9. 
And mark it on your calendars, October 21st, the One Life Gala in support of Princess Margaret Hospital. They'll be honoring you at this gala. Yeah, I'll be speaking at the gala. Princess Margaret is my temple of healing. It's Mm -hmm. an extraordinary place. And then in November, November the 20th, wow, that's going to be another incredible fundraiser for CANFAR, which has been another one of my pet charities for AIDS research. And uh, that is going to be at Roy Thompson Hall. I'm emceeing a huge musical concert called Harmonizing Hearts. Yeah, really looking forward to that as well. I think my daughter might be performing Mm -hmm. at it, but a a lot of great uh, musicians will be there. Uh, It's going to be fabulous. Just before we go, and if you're able to in just one sentence, and I know that that's asking a lot from from people like us, you and I like to expand on things. <laughs> what is your message to everyone? Stay in the light and don't be afraid and just share. Share your stories. I think that's the greatest gift that we can give one another um, to just open up the dialogue and let's really discuss things, let's share things. And let's encourage and support one another uh, the best way we can. Jeannie Becker, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you, dear Anne. Love you to bits and really appreciate it. The CIBC Run for the Cure funds groundbreaking research and support for Canadians affected by breast cancer. Please visit CIBCRunForTheCure.com to donate today. Next, the fashion designer showcasing the Indigenous influence, Shaliza Backus, with that story. Now, this is a story that I am honoured to be able to share, especially with the subject of truth and reconciliation at the top of our minds. I'm joined by Indigenous fashion stylist and designer, creative director, and content creator, Scott Wabano. How are you? Hello, thank you for having me. I'm really good. Thank you. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much. And I feel like this is just a very important conversation to have. And I do want to give our listeners a little bit of background about you first, because not only do you represent the various Indigenous communities in Canada, but you also represent the 2S LGBTQ plus people as well as you identify as Two-Spirit. So what does all of that mean to you? Well, for instance, I always like to say my queerness and my indigeneity aren't one of another. You know, they're really intertwined with my identity and within my culture as a Cree two-spirit individual as well. You know, it really means that I have a role within my communities and within society as well to, you know, to really bring balance that a lot of communities are in dire need of right now, you know, uh, due to colonization and uh, the ongoing uh, violences going against Indigenous and 2SLGBTQ people, you know, there's really space for Two-Spirit people to kind of come in and really embrace their communities, embrace their identities and embrace their gifts that they bring to their communities and really ensure that healing and, you know, that balance within society is brought forward. And tell me about how it feels to be a creator of Indigenous background, first of all, because I feel like Indigenous people have been through so much and I feel like we don't even have enough time to explain all of that. But like I said, with truth and reconciliation at the top of our minds, do you feel like your platform is helping? For sure. You know, for the first time ever, we are really seeing Indigenous folk, Indigenous people from all different backgrounds and all different communities, you know, really gain 
uh, platforms such as mine and, you know, um, really gain that recognition amongst mainstream society, you know, where we are finally being able to share our stories, share our histories and share our teachings as Indigenous peoples, you know, and I feel like it's been a long time coming, you know, Canada has been built off the backs of Indigenous people uh, for since time immemorial, you know, and I really think it's important to really shine light and really amplify the various voices and the various um, experiences a lot of Indigenous people are still facing within so-called Canada. And I'm so happy that you you get to do that and that you, not happy that you get to do that, but glad that you're able to do that, that you have such a huge platform and huge following. And tell us a little bit about how you got started. Well, like a lot of people, you know, it happened during the pandemic and being an Indigenous youth in an urban setting, you know, I was going to school in Toronto at the time and I was away from my community, you know, my family, uh, my lands, you know, everything that I kind of knew growing up. And social media was always a way for me to connect with my family, connect with my friends and connect with uh, so many individuals all across the world, you know, uh, living in an isolated community. I often used it as a tool, you know, to really connect and really expand my horizons, I guess you could say, you know, and really meet other people from across the world because not a lot of people were into fashion as much as I was growing up in the communities. So social media was kind of a way for me to connect with other people and really build that community. And that's something that I really wanted to do with my social media. You know, like I said, we are finally starting to see Indigenous representation within mainstream media, you know, but Indigenous representation comes in all many different forms and shapes. And, you know, we have so many different backgrounds and we're so diverse and there's so many different talents and so many different um, interests that a lot of people are into. So, you know, I really wanted my social media platform to be a space, a safe space for a lot of Indigenous and 2SLGBTQ youth to kind of come in and feel represented, feel heard and feel like they also have a space within this industry, whether it be fashion or business or etc. I love that. And once again, congratulations on all your success. And do you feel as though your Indigenous background influences what you do in the fashion space? Definitely. You know, like I said, my indigeneity really is intertwined with who I am as an individual. You know, everything that I do, I am looking through a scope of two-spirit eyes, two-spirit seeing, and also Cree seeing as well, too, you know. And I think it's really important that we bring these experiences and bring these point of views to mainstream society. I don't want to say we've been underrepresented. We've been systemically excluded from a lot of these industries, you know, due to colonization and just due to the fact that the resources that a lot of Indigenous people are given within Indigenous communities don't really match up to the resources a lot of other groups are getting outside of Indigenous communities. That is so true. And what do you feel like you've been doing to combat that? Do you feel like you have to put in extra work? Sometimes it truly does feel like I'm putting in extra work. You know, oftentimes I'm pretty much the first Indigenous people or first two-spirit person a lot of these brands and organizations are working with, you know, so there's a lot of educating and a lot of consulting that comes with my platform, you know, and honestly, it, it does take a lot out of me, you know, I, I am not a teacher by any means, you know, I'm a fashion designer, I'm a fashion stylist, but it just comes with being Indigenous, honestly, because for the longest time, a lot of society has just gone uneducated about a lot of our issues and a lot about a lot of our experiences. And a lot of it is finally starting to come to light. 
And a lot of people are finally starting to feel safe and starting to feel like they're being listened to. And not only that, but their stories are finally being valued and honored. And, you know, we're finally in this time of reclamation and reconciliation. And I think it's slowly starting to happen. We're seeing, you know, more survivors speak out and more conversations happening within our communities and within mainstream society. But, you know, there's still a long ways to go for sure. Yeah. And that was literally going to be my next point. We've come a long way, but we do still have a long way to go. And I I really hope that you're able to make it a point when you have conversations with non-Indigenous people of all the things you just said. And do you feel like you're having more opportunities to have those conversations with people in the industry? Definitely. You know, for the first time, we are finally starting to see more Indigenous and Two-Spirit folks being included in spaces that we've never been um, included in before. And, you know, this really gives us the opportunity to share our stories, to share our experiences with other individuals and really ensure that, you know, we're collaborating with other like-minded individuals to ensure that change is being brought not only to our Indigenous communities within so-called Canada, but across the globe, you know, and really ensuring that healing is coming. A hundred percent. And Scott, this may be a loaded question, but what does truth and reconciliation mean to you? You know, there's a lot of conversations. There's a lot of meanings that it really does mean to me. You know, I really think it's the time for non-Indigenous Canadians to really take the time to educate themselves and listen, you know, really read up on the calls to action that we are asking for, you know, read up on how you could help bring those calls to action to light. We need allyship more than ever, you know, and for the longest time, this has just been an Indigenous people's fight within Canada. But it's all of our fights, you know, this is our history, this is our homelands, this is our future, you know, and the future generations really depend on it. And I think it's really important to take this time to really learn what this day and this week is about, you know, and really take the time to listen. I feel like people always just are listening to reply and not listening to actually take it in and change their ways and educate themselves and really bring forth that healing that we truly desperately need within our communities. And let me ask you, what are like maybe the two biggest takeaway messages that you want people to have from these conversations? Like what are the two main things that you would tell people? Our history is not a long gone history. You know, it's still very much a part of things that are going on to this day and age. You know, colonization really runs rampant and it didn't only affect Indigenous communities within Canada, it affected everything worldwide, you know, and we are still combating and still facing the consequences of a lot of these colonial and capitalistic systems that are put in place within our communities, you know, and this is not something we're used to, you know, we never lived our lives this way. We lived our life with creator, you know, with mother nature, and we're really in tune with what we're supposed to bring forth to this world. And I think it's really important to remember that Indigenous knowledge is sacred and, you know, it's really powerful and it should be honored and valued, especially beside Western knowledge. And I think it's really important to remember that. And like I said, it's not just one organization or one government's job. It's everybody's job who's living within this country. So I think it's really important to look at the calls to action, take the time to educate, to learn and to also listen. 100%, Scott. Thank you so much. And if our listeners want to follow along with your journey and see your fashion slays, because let me just say, they slay, where can we find you? 
<laughs> yes, you could find me on any social platform at Scott Wabano, my first and last name, S-C-O-T-T-W-A-B-A-N-O. And my website is also scottwabano.com. So you could check out my fashion there. <laughs> Amazing, Scott. Thank you so much. No, oh, thank you. Coming up on the feed, Greenbelt flip-flop, now what? Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. The Greenbelt scandal is still a red-hot topic here in Ontario. After losing two cabinet ministers, two senior staffers, and untold points in the polls, Premier Doug Ford admitted he'd made a mistake. He returned the land in question to the Greenbelt, and he said he hoped to regain the trust of Ontarians. Over and done with? Far from it, or so it appears. Details have been unearthed about land south of Hamilton being moved into that city's urban boundary, leaving naysayers claiming that this could just be the tip of the ice. Adam Vaughn was a fearless political reporter, a tenacious Toronto City Councillor, member of Parliament for two terms, and is now a principal at Navigator, a crisis communications firm. Welcome, Adam Vaughn, and thank you for being our guest. So is this now a government in crisis? Well, it's, it's, it's a crisis um, to the degree that it's, it's become the narrative that's defining uh, Doug Ford. Um, I, I think that, yeah, you, you can probably make that diagnosis that, that uh, the government is in crisis. Uh, it, it can't escape talking about this issue. And it, it, um, it, it puts a cloud over virtually every deal that the government makes. Um, you know, is, is there a backstory that isn't known? And if that backstory was known, would the government be making the decisions it's making? So it's, it's, it's really severely um, hampered uh, Ford's reputation and, and damaged it. And now the question is, does that spill over into all of government? And people keep calling this the tip of the iceberg. And now we have new details about what's going on in Hamilton. How deep could this story go? You talk about a backstory, but there's also depth to this story. You know, it's it's property owners are have a right to ask for their for their land to be rezoned and 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 uh, recategorized. So there, there's nothing wrong with a private landowner, a farmer, or a you know sort of a, an industrial park owner or a house owner saying that they want a rezoning and they want the the the, the, the property rights to be reevaluated by government. But there are very public and there are very um, defined processes for that to, to go through. And when you start cutting corners and 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 uh, sort of striking deals and breaking promises in back rooms, um, the, the allegations kind of take on a life of their own. So even if you're doing things for a good reason or the right reason, uh, the mere fact that you're not using the prescribed process, especially around land use and especially around the powers the government have to make land very, very valuable, very, very quickly. When you don't use the public processes, um, there's only one way government corruption happens, and that's when private interests trump public process and public good. And that seems to be what's happened here, and that's why I think the government has backtracked, is because it's found itself in a, in a dead-end alley uh, with only itself to blame. You know, it's interesting. People are freaking out over the fact that there seem to be some shenanigans going on in Las Vegas. So what happens in Las Vegas is not staying in Las Vegas. How important is that to this scandal story? 
Well, when it first broke, it, it just seemed to be bad process and, and questionable environmental policy. Um, and there didn't seem to be a sort of a quid pro quo private benefit that was secured by any of the politicians or political staff involved. Um, but the story that came out of Las Vegas that, that indicates that, that, um, that there may have been um, uh, sort of comped perks uh, from a developer to, to staff uh, and to a politician, uh, uh, now a former cabinet minister, that's where it trips the line into, into, into capital C corruption and potentially has, has um, the possibility of, of charges being laid. It, it, it's one thing to make a bad public policy decision and to, and to have people profit from it, um, but when, when you yourself profit from that kind of a decision, that's when it becomes very, very serious, and that's when, and probably why, the RCMP are investigating. Because, um, you know, it's, as I said, it's one thing to make a bad decision; it's one thing to make a bad call, uh, and and to and to, to follow a bad public process. It's quite another thing to to receive, you know, ten, hundred, a thousand, any amount of dollars or public benefit uh, in exchange for a deal. And I think that that uh, until that that Las Vegas trip came to light. It was just terrible government. Now it feels like it's corruption. And, and that's what the courts and the police will, will be looking at in the days and weeks ahead. So I'm curious, you as a former MP who served as Parliamentary Secretary Housing under ministers responsible for families, children and social development, do you think Ontario has enough available land on which to build housing without having to open or now reopen the Greenbelt to development? No, absolutely. I mean, the, 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 the government's own task force on affordable housing um, looked at um, undeveloped land inside the, 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 the urban zones that, that, are, that are being discussed here and came to the conclusion that there was more than enough uh, underdeveloped or vacant land available to, to meet the, the housing targets and the ambitious housing targets that have been set by the provincial government. So the government asked um, you know, a panel of experts to examine the um, development patterns across the GTA and around uh, sort of the Golden Horseshoe and, and got very clear advice from them that there was more than enough land. There's more than enough land in the city of Toronto. There's more than enough land in the 905. And there's certainly more than enough land in the, inside the urban boundaries of Hamilton. And so there was no need to do this. Um, and, and the green belt is, is a very particular um, uh, land designation in a very particular urban environment so adjacent to the major cities of Ontario. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's irreplaceable. It's irreplaceable as the headwaters and, and, and sort of the, um, you know, the kettle lakes and the, and the rivers that all originate in those areas. It, it, it's very precious environmental land. It was identified as such and created as a green belt to protect its, its ecological integrity. And so um, the Greenbelt was created very carefully. There's a p- process to add and subtract land that, that's very publicly prescribed. Um, and it's needed uh, to, to, to protect places like Toronto from floods and, and, and from, from ecological sort of disasters, the likes of which we're seeing more and more often now. But it's also um, recreational land. It's also agricultural land. And it's a precious resource. And once it's built on, it's, it's destroyed. So... Um, the, the, the green belt was created for good reasons. It, it, it took years to bring into to reality. It needs to be protected, and and, um, and and while we have a housing crisis, which also needs to be solved, um, the two are not competing against one another. There's ample land available to develop uh, and to and to solve and address the housing crisis. You don't need to destroy the environment al- along the way. And I think that's the lesson that, that uh, the provincial government has been taught time and time again. It wasn't taken to heart by, by Doug Ford. 
it's not the first time he's tried to change it, but but uh, what he's run into is the politics of, of, of it, and he is, has shown himself to have not only misjudged the politics, but also ran a process which is very, very questionable. So there is land available to develop. Doug Ford did not need to touch the green belt. The minute he did, he got into trouble, and, and rightly so. So the premier says that he intends to try and regain the trust of Ontarians. And the opposition, who's been hot to trot on this issue for months and months, but pointed out, the leader, Marit Stiles, pointed out recently that she felt that he was now taking credit for good leadership by admitting that he made a mistake and that she feels that this is wrong. Well, it's, it's politics 101 to sort of, you know, be strong and decisive after you've made a mistake. Better leadership is not to make the mistake. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that, uh, um, you know, I mean, he, he may spin it and claim credit, but I think in, at the end of the day, uh, from a political perspective, everybody knows um, that, that he was caught early on in his, in his uh, jump to po- provincial politics promising to a room full of developers to crack open the green belt. When he got caught, he, he said he would never do it. Then he tried to do it again and got caught a second time. Um, it's, it's, it's clearly, um, it, it's a bridge too far for Ontario and for, and for voters in the 905 in particular and, and for activists around the environment. Um, he has constantly tried to get at it um, and bend rules to do it, and he's been caught now twice um, sort of playing with the green belt. Uh, I don't think he gets credit for, for not doing it because um, no one asked him to do it. And, and when he tried to do it, he was he, he knew twice now. He he's, he's said, I shouldn't have done it. Um, at what point does he learn his lesson? I think that's the question that, that Ontario voters are asking themselves. At what point does Doug Ford finally learn his lesson? And so, you know, it, it's what happens when you take things in behind closed doors and into the back rooms of Queen's Park and try to swing a deal that's too clever by half is you end up in a situation where taxpayers are on the hook and that's bad governance and i think that's the process and that's the the the, the situation where, where doug ford finds himself right now everybody is mad at him the the, the original owners the, the the residents surround the green belt and the new owners of the green belt who's happy in this process not even doug ford and his caucus apparently all right, off goes your political reporter hat and on goes your principal at navigator hat a crisis communications firm what does the premier need to do in order to regain the trust of Ontarians? Obey the rule and follow the process and stop trying to make things up as you go along. Adam Vaughn, former political reporter, Toronto City Councillor, Member of Parliament and now Principal at Navigator, thank you so much for your thoughts and your time. Not a worry. Good to talk to you again. And you as well. Thanks, Adam. The number of refugees and asylum seekers arriving here in Ontario continues to grow. Glenn Perkins with the story and what York Region is doing to help. York Region, similar to other municipalities across the GTA, is experiencing an influx of refugees and asylum seekers. The region recently received funding from the provincial government. Catherine Chislett, Commissioner Community and Health Services, explained the situation to me. Well, like other regions in Ontario, um, York Region, we're experiencing an unexpected influx of people seeking asylum and the need for suitable, sustainable housing supports for refugee claimants and asylum seekers coming to the greater Toronto and Hamilton area. It's a major concern. Actually, our biggest concern is the health and safety of the individuals who are seeking asylum and are in our region. I mean, we're not, unlike the others again, 
we have an housing affordability crisis, and um, we really do feel it's important to welcome the newest members of our community, make sure they feel welcomed and that they get the support. What is the process for refugees arriving in York Region? What's happening now, we, we've got an encampment that we are aware of, Island Seekers, and we've uh, connected uh, to provide quite a number of regional services into that site to help the individuals who are there. And we've also been working with um, the settlement agencies, the provincial funded settlement agencies, to support them. We have other people as well. We just don't know where they are. Um, I'll give you uh, an example of what I mean. Not long ago, we uh, discovered through bylaw enforcement that there were about 16 individuals, you know, sleeping in cots in an unfinished basement, pretty, you know, and, and being charged quite a high rent for that. So those are people who were asylum seekers, but, you know, this was the option that seemed to be available to them. So they are also being offered assistance. We suspect there may be more situations like that in York Region. That information to me is shocking that this is happening in our community. Yeah. Is there a difference between the latest refugees arriving here in York region compared to when we had the Ukrainians fleeing the war in their country? The big difference, and I don't think a lot of people would, would know about this or necessarily think about this, is it depends upon your refugee status. So when Ukrainian refugees arrived, they were what's called uh, it's a planned immigration. So the federal government knew they were coming, gave them special visas, and so there was a really good coordination that happened. And in fact, when they would arrive at Pearson Airport, there'd be reception people working there, um, and we had all of our, our partner municipalities. We stepped in and helped, and we had temporary housing available for them. So at the reception center, they could decide you know, where people could go, where the vacancies were. So it all flowed kind of smoothly. I mean, the, the only challenge there is we didn't receive any federal funding to help pay for this, but the service itself was quite excellent. The group we have now are unplanned. So by their very nature, there is no reception service or there is no coordination that's happening as they arrive. They show up and then we're scrambling to respond and, and we really need to do better than that. You know, we're really pleased with some recent funding announcements by the provincial government and, and that there is funding available federally if we apply for it and are fortunate enough to get it. But what we really need as well as that is a coordination response uh, so that people don't have to end up in these dire circumstances before we can find them and help them out. Let's talk about the funding from the province. How much is it oh. and what will it be used for? Uh, the funding we're receiving in York Region, like a number of communities, we're, we've got uh, just over $2.3 million coming in. And this is under the uh, Canada-Ontario Housing Benefit. Now, this is a program that we are already operating that uh, assists eligible low-income housing households with housing costs. You know, to help bridge that difference a bit between the market rent of the unit and what they can afford. So this is additional funding that has been announced for us that we'll be able to target at people who are refugee claimants and asylum seekers. So it's, a, it's an actually uh, really, really helpful. You know, we can provide interim housing options, but with the housing crisis, the lack of rental housing, the lack of affordable housing, really difficult to find permanent housing for people to live without some sort of uh, support for the rents. So really, really pleased that uh, this announcement has been made. It seems like this is a continuation. This will keep happening with refugees. The money from the province, it's a good start? The, the money is a good start, but it is, it is just a start. I mean, all the, all the indicators that we're seeing, all the people that I talk to, this is uh, the, the refugee asylum seeker situation has been really 
increasing, especially over the last year, not anticipated to end anytime soon. Um, so right now, you know, these sorts of funding supports and also the, the additional funding provided to the settlement agencies that was also announced, very much needed. If we can add some coordination to that, if we can add some support for funding of interim housing, we can get a system in place here. Again, it's not going away. It's not a one-time situation. And uh, we, we need to be ready. We need a system to support people. Commissioner Chislett, thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. You're very welcome, and thank you for the interest. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. Will AI or artificial intelligence replace doctors and change healthcare? Tina Cortez with the OMA's Perspective. Dr. Park, can you tell us how is technology changing healthcare? Yeah, so it, this is... Um this is a really interesting time, certainly from a technology standpoint, but we've had technology alter the way we do medicine for decades. Um, I've been practicing since we did x-rays and then went to CTs and are doing MRIs. And so we've had this um, explosion of technological advances. And really the question is, is how do we use them to augment our practice as opposed to just replacing our ability to make decisions? So how are doctors using artificial intelligence? Is AI already in use? So there are some places in Ontario where this is in use. Um, there is a Gemini project at the St. Mike's Hospital where they look at uh, early detection of patients who get delirium in the uh, in the inpatient units. They they have a program called Chart Watch, uh, which runs in the background of all their electronic medical records for medicine inpatients, and is taking a massive amounts of data around their you know their their real time heart rates and vital signs and blood pressures and all those and, and lab work, and basically tries to determine which patients are at uh, imminent risk for um, decompensating, getting really sick really quickly, needing ICU care. And then it signals a team that, hey, this, this might be going on, and the team has to respond to that. So does that mean it's used primarily right now for detection and analysis? Um, so right now where we're at is really about, yes, how are we taking the massive amounts of data that exists and then make a clinical outcome decision on it? There is another program that we highlighted on our um, on our uh, media briefing that, that looked at uh, a diabetes uh, prediction and prevention project, um, and that's more of an out-of-hospital event. But, but it, it really is about how do we take the data and how do we try to predict what's going to happen to who based on what we know about the data. Do you think AI will help in terms of the shortage of healthcare professionals? Yes, there's a short answer. Where we're really talking about AI is in the clinical prediction realm. Um, there's this tremendous opportunity for AI to help us both in saying who's going to get sick and when are they going to get sick and what are we going to do about those. So I think that it helps us streamline our decision-making and a process, but also it can also help from an administrative standpoint. Uh, I think where AI has some really potential um, 
uh, utility is around the things that we do that are very somewhat mundane, they're very repetitive, and we don't need necessarily the doctor to be doing those tasks. I, I can think of forms as being one real example. So if we get AI to assist us with those tasks, then it frees up the doctor to do other things and, um, and, and be more productive with their time. Do you think there's a danger, if it is used in diagnostics, that there would be a danger of false positives? Well, I think that danger exists now. Um, so I think like everything else that's an emerging technology, we have to really think about what guardrails we put in place. The one thing that, that we always talk about is, is, is the data in determines the data out, or more colloquial known as garbage in, garbage out. So we have to be really clear about what data inputs are we putting in how have we uh, determined their validity? Is there bias in the data that we put in? Because we only collect certain pieces of data from individuals and are we getting a representative sample? Are we using it to ensure that we have equity in, in how we use AI? All these things are really important when we think about new technologies and how we use them. And how will it impact the patient experience? Because that has to be at the top of the list. Absolutely. So I think the most obvious way for me as a provider is to say, I can actually spend more time with my patient. I can explain where the decision making is coming from, how we're making the decision, how it applies to them as a unique individual. Because I think it's one thing to say, look, um, you know, some AI generated computer decision is saying that you might have this. How do we contextualize that and explain that for a patient who don't have a computer for a brain? Right, And so I think that putting us as healthcare providers uh, more in communication, not less in communication with our patients, is really where the power lies. And we can't deny then that AI, artificial intelligence, is already shaping healthcare in this province. Yeah, I think we're really at the beginning of the start line with this. Um, you know, and, and so what that tells me is that I think that AI has the potential to change medicine like internet change medicine. Um, it's going to allow us to have, again, copious amounts of data to produce decision-making algorithms, treatment algorithms, disease prevention, um, complications, as well as administrative. So there's no place in our system that AI likely won't touch if we're thinking however many years in the future. And I don't think it's that far off that we're, we're thinking and talking about these things in order to better understand them. OMA President Dr. Andrew Park, thank you for joining us on the feed. No problem. Thanks for having me. After the break, the mission and the vision of Easter Seals. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. Since 1922, Easter Seals has been committed to enhancing the life and independence of Canadians with disabilities. Jim Lang now with the programs, services, and fundraising. 
Okay, by now you know about Easter Seals. They have the big York Simcoe Celebrity Hockey Classic coming up. They have the draft dinner November 2nd. They have the big tournament November 3rd in the Magna Center. You can get all the details at CelebrityHockeyClassics.com. And the funds raise support children with physical disabilities from across Ontario with Easter Seals. And, and they do such great work in this province every day, and they've done it for over 100 years. To talk more about it, thrilled to be joined by Charlene Mike, Manager of Development Central, Easter Seals, Ontario. Charlene, how are you? I am great. How are you today? Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Before we get into some of the stuff that Easter Seals does, I, I think we need to remind the listeners how important Easter Seals has been in this province for a century. That is a remarkable achievement for any organization. Well, you think, um, you know, we, I was actually at a, a board retreat on the weekend, and it was one of the things that we talked about, Easter Seals being 100 years old, we've been through wars, we've been through recessions, we've been through depressions, we've been through pandemics. I don't think there's too many companies or charities around that have been through everything. And we're still here because the need is so great for kids with physical disabilities. That is why we do what we do. And you know, Charlene, I think about what Easter Seals has done for the last hundred years and, and one of your mandates among all other things, is equipment funding. And because of the work at Easter Seals, you consistently, year after year, have come up with new and better equipment for children with a physical disability to live their best life. Well, you know what, it's interesting because, you know, we always try and, and tell people about equipment and people hear the word equipment, Jim, and they don't know. Equipment, is she talking about? What kind of equipment? Because when you mention the word equipment, you could be talking about a tranny for a car. You can be talking about a drain for a pipe. You can be talking about a wrench. But for our kids, the word equipment, it's one word, but it actually means independence mm. and dignity. That is what that word means to our kids, because without equipment, none of this happens. Our kids don't get to schools without wheelchairs and walkers. They don't have dignity without commodes, without bath lifts, without shower. It, it's a different world for our kids. And equipment is the one thing that it's not a sexy word, but it's a word that empowers our kids. It allows our kids to get to university and, and college and high school and public school. It gets our kids off the floor. Like mm -hmm. literally gets our kids off the floor and to the next level. You can get more details at easterseals.org. I have a daughter in university right now, and she talks glowingly about a young man who has a wheelchair and has a, a, a working dog to help them, an emotional support dog that helps them get around the campus. And, and that's, we take, I mean, the kids don't even think about that. They take that for granted. But not that long ago, that wouldn't have been a reality. But thanks to Easter Seals, it is. And you know what? It is a reality. And for us and our families, I mean, you know, one of the things we have found along the way that, you know, the average Easter Seal family is, is living for with under $40,000 a year, Jim, because quite often it's hard to get care for kids with physical disabilities. So quite often it becomes a one family income. Hmm. So that makes a big difference in our Easter Seal world. And we talk about that, you know, young boy at university. Can you imagine the fact that with the equipment and the tools that he's brought along the way, and he's probably gone to Easter Seal camp as well, that he is going to be a lawyer or a doctor or a psychologist 
or a teacher, we are building a huge workforce of kids that just can't wait to get there. And the, the importance of education for them is unbelievable because they know that that's how their successes are going to happen. But without the equipment to get them there, they don't get there. Speaking with Charlene Mike, Manager of Development Central, Easter Seals, Ontario, getting everyone ready for the York Simcoe Celebrity Hockey Classic taking place in York Region in the first week of November. Get more details at CelebrityHockeyClassics.com. Among the other things that Easter Seals, Ontario help, it's scholarships and something as a parent I can only imagine is so crucial, parent resource information to help parents get through day-to-day and understand the challenges and let them know they're not alone. And, and, and you know what, one of our biggest things besides our equipment gym is our camp. We run two fully accessible Easter Seals camp. And for our Easter Seal kids to be able to go to camp for 8 to 10 days, and they are in a place where everybody is just like them. Nobody stares at them. Nobody thinks they're any different. And they play sledge hockey, and they play basketball, and they do the high ropes, and they do campfires. And not only is it the kids that are going away and it's independence and it's friends and it's social, it also gives the parents a break because it's just feel kids are care 24 hours a day. So, you know, maybe for 10 days, the parent can spend time with some of their other kids that they might have. And for them, it's a, it's a break for the parents, but it's a big, huge step in independence for our kids. I, uh, Actually, this board meeting I was at on the weekend, one of our newest board members was a counselor at camp when he was 17 years old, and now he's vice president of a hospital. And he talks glowingly about what he learned as a person from just being a counselor at camp. So between the equipment and between our camp, the funding is huge for our kids. And that's why we run events like our Celebrity Hockey Classic. That's why we need the community to help us because we can't do it alone. Our families can't do it alone. No, absolutely. The one constant, I mean, things have changed so much in the last hundred years. You mentioned earlier in the interview, Charlene, but from Whipper Billy Watson to Con Smythe to Bobby Orr to Daryl Sittler, you name the sports celebrity. It it, it makes me emotional to think about all the time they put in to help Easter Seals. Well, you know what? I think I think when you talk about the people and you talk about the celebrities, most of the celebrities that we have a chance to meet, Jim and you do too, they are very kind-hearted, hard-working people, and they don't take for granted the talent and the hard work that it took them to get where they got in life, and they have no problem. And I say kneeling down, and I'm telling you kneeling down, because if you ever watch our celebrities with our kids, They kneel down, Jim, and they go eye level with our kids. They don't look down at them. They look up at them. They learn their names. They high-five the kids. And the celebrities really take ownership in supporting what we're doing. Like, you know, one of our hockey tournaments under Eric Lindros is one of the highest-grossing ones. Eric takes ownership for his tournament. Wendell, all these guys, Daryl Sittler, you mentioned Bobby Orr, you mentioned all of them, they take a little bit of their heart when they meet our kids and they're like, I can help make a difference by being a part of this event and being a part of this charity. And you know what, when you you take a look at it, they're helping our kids get into wheelchairs and walkers. They're helping our kids get commodes. They're helping our kids get everything they need through their own talent. 
I know one of the, the great privileges of my career was being able to interview David Only a number of times when he was still alive. And uh, b- boy, did he ever educate me about what it's like to live with a physical disability in Ontario. Uh, it, are we getting better as a province, as a society, making things more accessible for everyone? Getting better. Um, one of the one of our, our our big things we do at Easter Seals now is we advocate more and more and more for kids with physical disabilities. Uh, we've created a big awareness campaign that kicks off. It's actually uh, kicks off in May, and we talk about the accessibility for kids with physical disability. And part of the accessibility is not only being able to get around, but again, going back to the fact that. When people help us with equipment and help us with donations, it helps our kids get around. It helps our kids get to where they need to be. Putting it in a perspective, Jim, if you're thinking about buying your, your son or your daughter or your niece or nephew a car, you know, when they're 16 years old in high school or helping them get a car to go off to university or college and you're, you're buying a used car for $10,000 and, you know, we're buying a wheelchair for $25,000. Mm. And a child's not going to need one of those. A child's going to need four or five of those, maybe six of those in a lifetime. Wow. That's more than some people paid for their first house. Well, I had no idea they were that much money. Yeah, yes, yes. Yeah, they are. Like, it's interesting. We've got a Dancing with the Stars happening in Newmarket Aurora uh, in a in a couple weeks, and it's a fundraiser for Easter Seals, and people don't get a battery for a wheelchair. Is between five hundred and twelve hundred dollars. That's a battery. Now you and I are going to Canadian Tire, and we're buying a battery for one hundred and fifty dollars. Wheelchair battery between five hundred and twelve hundred dollars, and they don't come with the kids. You got to buy a battery separately. Like the eighty batteries aren't included. Yeah, no kidding, Charlene Mike from Easter Seals, Ontario. Please help out in any way you can with money, with time. Anything you can do is deeply appreciated. You can get more details at their website at easterseals.org. To be more involved and to play hockey with some of your favorite NHL stars, you can be part of the York Simcoe Celebrity Hockey Classic coming up November 2nd and 3rd in Aurora, New Market. Go to celebrityhockeyclassics.com. Charlene, an absolute pleasure for me to speak to you, and I, I can't even tell you how much it means to me to talk to you about Easter Seals. Uh, continued, and here's another century of great work. Thank you. And one of the things we are looking for, Jim, is we still do need two corporate teams or guys that are willing to play hockey in in the York Simcoe area. We still need one more for the New Market Aurora Tournament. So if anybody's interested in putting a bunch of guys together and playing hockey and meeting some guys like Wendell Clark and Guy Carboneau and Shane Corson and Mike Krusiniski and possibly Jeremy Roenick, we got a whole cast of guys coming out. We could use their support by helping us or a company wants to get into community work and they want to get into networking, we can use their team. We still need two teams to fill that tournament. Okay, you heard. You heard Charlene. York Region, step up. Fill a need. Sign up right now at CelebrityHockeyClassics.com. Charlene, an absolute pleasure. All the best. Thank you. If you missed any part of the feed, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you so much for listening.